Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm here today with Tayshawn Latner, a professor of history at Thomas Jefferson University, to talk about his book, Cuban Revolution in America, Havana and the Making of the United States Left, 1968 to 1992. Tayshawn, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't we start just by asking, um, you know, what sparked this really great book about American leftists uh, traveling to Cuba? Sure. So, you know, long before I was an academic, I was a political activist. And, you know, one of the issues that I was engaged with back in the late 1990s and early 2000s was U.S. foreign policy and specifically um, U.S. foreign policy toward Cuba. And so actually the very first time that I became involved with Cuba was actually not as an academic. It was as a intern uh, working for Global Exchange in San Francisco, which is a human rights organization that among other things at that time um, hosted uh, travel trips uh, to Cuba that allowed U.S. citizens to travel to and evaluate and uh, witness and experience Cuban society for the first time. So that was back in 1998. The second time that I traveled to Cuba, sorry, the first time that I traveled to Cuba after being involved with it for several years uh, was in 2004 as a member of the Vencedemos Brigade, which of course is one of the organizations that uh, whose origins I profile uh, in the book. And as a result of that experience, I became interested in thinking about the role and the place of Cuba within the American radical imaginary and thinking about the salience of Cuba's revolution for generations of activists in the United States that have been uh, working for various social changes that um, American activists and leftists perceived as having been instituted already in Cuba. Yeah, but you write that the Cuba you know, remained the most consistent influence on left-wing radicalism in the United States. Why, why do you think Cuba has been so influential? I think there's a variety of reasons. I mean, I think one of the reasons uh, is is the sheer durability of Cuba's revolution, that Cuba uh, had uh, persisted for uh, years and then uh, decades. Uh, and so there were other third world revolutions or left-wing or socialist governments that had been inspirational uh, to U.S. U.S. leftists and U.S. social movements, um, but that had succumbed um, to right-wing coups uh, or other developments. So the government of Alcobar Arbenz in Guatemala uh, comes to mind, which was, of course, overthrown in a CIA-backed coup. There's also the, the government of Salvador Allende in uh, Chile, which, which also succumbed to a similar coup in the early 1970s. So Cuba is an enormously durable example of left-wing social change for U.S. leftists. But I think that it, it goes much farther than simply durability. I think that Cuba as a uh, revolutionary society that had, tri- that had tried to enshrine uh, ideas like universal education, universal health care, uh, subsidized food and housing as universal human rights, 
um, that was enormously powerful as an example for a lot of U.S. leftists who were fighting for similar changes in the United States. Um, recall, of course, that this is the 1960s. This is the era of the Great Society and the War on Poverty, in which um, support for those kinds of social programs of of a robust social safety net in which no citizens, no human beings are left behind was, you know, enjoyed widespread support or at least wider support uh, in the United States than it did uh, certainly in, you know, by the 1970s and 1980s. Um, so there's the domestic aspect of it, but there's also the um, global uh, part of it as well. In Cuba, uh, upon uh, achieving a successful revolution in 1959, January 1st, um, almost immediately began lending its aid, both material and rhetorical, you know, to uh, left-wing and socialist and anti-imperialist movements and governments um, in the third world, one of the earliest being, of course, um, Algeria, which was in the midst of a, uh, uh, an armed insurgency against French colonization. Um, and throughout the years, Cuba aided uh, a number of left-wing or anti-imperialist movements that uh, played a role within American political culture. The, the obvious one, of course, is um, Vietnam in the late 1960s, of course, Vietnam became, uh, the war in Vietnam became a significant issue uh, within the United States. And Cuba's aid was significant and, um, you know, and consequential. I mean, at, at the time, actually in the late 1960s, that uh, there was a milk shortage in Cuba. For instance, Cuba um, was sending tons of its own milk and other products um, to Vietnam to aid the Vietnamese Liberation Forces. And so this was, you know, perceived in the United States as a, you you know, daring act in solidarity with Vietnam, uh, and you know the um, support for, um, or rather, opposition to the Vietnam War. The United States took a variety of forms, and not all of those forms were simply opposition to the war itself. Some U.S. leftists actually took the side of the North Vietnamese insurgents, um, and you know wished them victory. And so, Cuba's aid was seen as you know bold and daring and and very important. By the 1970s, Cuba had become involved in uh, aiding anti-colonial and anti-racist movements uh, actually throughout the African continent, but most uh, importantly in southern Africa uh, in the mid-1970s, Cuba was um, aiding uh, the uh, struggle in Angola, um, and that struggle actually was was one of the factors that prompted the uh, the downfall of the apartheid uh, regime in South Africa, um, and so that was also perceived within um, the United States as well. So yeah, I mean, there's this sort of matrix, there's mm -hmm. this confluence of factors that are both domestic in the United States, in which people are perceiving Cuban society as instituting uh, social changes and social structures that they want to institute within the United States. And there's also Cuba's foreign policy, which, um, uh, you know, has, it, as it's often been said, right, Cuba is a small uh, so-called third world nation, but has had the foreign policy of a large, uh, a powerful nation. Yeah, I mean, you write a bit about how Americans are really, these activists who are traveling to Cuba are really attracted to this you know, third world variant of Marxism. And since, you know, a lot of our listeners might not know what that actually means, I was wondering if you kind of explain that to listeners a little bit, you know, what is this third world variant of Marxism and why are these, these activists really attracted to that in the United States? Yeah, I mean, so in a nutshell, I mean, traditional Marxism, I guess, conceptualized the engine of social change, the engine of revolutionary transformation as the industrial proletariat, the industrial working class. 
And mm. so China's revolution had presented an alternative that the you know rural peasantry um, you know could be revolutionary agents of change and you know could participate in revolutionary struggle. Um, by the time that Cuba's revolution you know gained steam in the late 1950s, um, it you know was apparent that the uh, that you know Cuban rural workers uh, and farmers and peasants were playing a significant role. Um, and so I think that you know I think that precedent was not necessarily perceived as especially relevant to people you know in the United States um, but you know in terms of their own political movements but what it did was sort of announce that Cuba's revolution would be different that it would be sort of embedded within third world revolutionary traditions and um, you know seemingly embedded within Marxism although that was not avowed by the Cuban revolutionary leadership until um, the Bay of Pigs invasion when actually just a, a few, uh, a short time before that, Fidel Castro um, announced uh, or admitted, depending on who you're talking to, the you know socialist and Marxist character of uh, the revolution. But so these things, um, you know, meant that Cuba's revolution was perceived as left wing, was perceived as you know um, uh, within the socialist camp, but was uh, was different. And this was important to a lot of U.S. leftists who, you know, were open to ideas of socialism and left-wing radicalism, but were, of course, enormously disillusioned with the Soviet Union and its, you know, sort of shadow of totalitarianism and, and death camps. And so Cuba, um, although it found itself uh, within the, the Soviet camp um, uh, after 1961 as a self-defensive measure against U.S. Uh, pressure and aggression that Cuba always uh, was, you know, perceived as being, you know, as being different. Mm -hmm. And so you start this book um, talking about this organization that you've already mentioned, mentioned the Menzo Ramos Brigade. But what was this organization about, and what brought them to Cuba? So that yeah, so the Vencedemos Brigade was uh, formed by you know elements of the anti-war movement in the United States, um, especially SDS, uh, Students for a Democratic Society. And at this time, this was sort of late 1968. The Vietnam War was at its height, um, but there was. Um, uh, perceived within U.S. movements was a sort of a little bit of a lack of direction uh, in terms of what to do with this this new energy that was being generated within um, the U.S. left. And so uh, in the words of some of the organizers of the Vincent Ambus Brigade, they wanted to um, create what they called a so-called foreign policy of the U.S. left. They wanted to bring this, this energy, this sort of left-wing um, vibrance within U.S. society and focus it abroad, not just within the United States. But the Vincent Amos Brigade was also initially conceptualized as a way to um, consolidate U.S. support for the Cuban Revolution, but more importantly, give Americans who were interested in Cuban society a way to witness um, the nature of Cuban society and culture for themselves. Um, Cuba at that time um, had uh, was uh, you know under a U.S. travel ban. Uh, U.S. citizens were prohibited by law from traveling to Cuba. And so perceptions of Cuban society were, of course, generated through coverage within the U.S. media, uh, which, you know, the Benson Amos Brigade perceived uh, justly as quite biased against um, Cuba and the Cuban revolution. 
Yeah, it, what, what's great about this book is that you talk, you get to talk a lot about the experience of these people who travel to Cuba, you know, on the ground, right? And so it's, it's this amazing amount of energy and hope, but also some disillusionment once they get on the island, right? So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what their experience actually looked like in Cuba. Yeah, so the Vincent Amos Brigade's uh, first two contingents, uh, they uh, were allowed to cut sugarcane actually on the island. Um, and uh, so the Vincent Amos Brigade, actually the, the initial um, idea with it was um, to aid Cuba's socialist development by freeing up labor within Cuba so that more Cubans could participate in the 1970 sugar harvest. So in 1970, the uh, the Cuban government and Cuban society mobilized for what they called the 10 million tons harvest, which was uh, really an odd effort to harvest a sufficient amount of sugarcane to um, jumpstart the Cuban economy using what was at that time and what would, remain, what would remain for several decades, actually, the primary means of foreign exchange for the Cuban economy, which was, of course, sugar. And so in support of this goal, the Vincent Amos Brigade wanted to send uh, sympathetic U.S. volunteers to Cuba to aid in this effort in, in some way. And, you know, apparently, I mean, according to the activists that I talked to, that I, that I uh, interviewed, the kind of initial dream was to actually, you know, cut sugarcane along with the Cubans and also foreign solidarity delegations that were participating in this and they were sort of they were sort of too afraid to ask right like the idea of Americans um, cutting sugarcane in Cuba was um, was sort of imagined as an impossibility but the uh, official permission came from actually Fidel, Fidel Castro himself who said that they would be allowed to, to cut sugarcane and um, and so that was the the nature of the first, um, two brigades was that uh, several hundred American um, volunteers um, cut sugarcane in Cuba um, alongside uh, Cuban workers, students, um, and volunteers, uh, and also left-wing solidarity uh, brigades and delegations from um, throughout the Once the, the U.S. government figured out that you know some of these people are going to Cuba, how did they react? Yeah, I mean, so it was it was greeted with you know enormous suspicion uh, within the United States. The um, the initial accusation was that uh, that Cuba was actually using the Vincent Amos Brigades as an opportunity to uh, to train uh, Americans in the art of guerrilla warfare, um, and this was of course emboldened by the um, the fact that there were some U.S. leftists in. United States, who were, um, you know, using more than simply rhetorical calls for, um, you know, for armed insurgency within the United uh, within the United States. So there were organizations like uh, Students for a Democratic Society that had played a significant role in the anti-war movement. Um, but their breakoff group, you know, the, the the Weatherman organization, had actually used acts of political violence, including bombings, to try to, as they termed it, bring the war home. Uh, and force the United States to, uh, you know, to end its, uh, you know, its uh, arm, its uh, its incursion into um, you know, into Vietnam. Yeah, and, and, and looking at some of those questions, you have to you dive into the FBI records, right? And it could have, all scholars who really dive into those records face really difficult methodological questions about how to approach those documents. And you take this really unique uh, look at these records, calling the FBI records as a state history of dissent. What, what, do, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. So at the time that I was doing this research, there was really nothing substantive other than one, one very good journal article that had been written 
um, about the the events in Amos Brigade. And so as I you know began to look for information about them, about the organization, one of the things that I that I learned immediately was that they had long been the object of uh, suspicion by both the FBI and the CIA. And uh, you know it was clear uh, from early on that there was a large um, uh, you know catch of materials um, you know that were FBI files. And so upon requesting them, I, I was told by the FBI that there were over twenty thousand um, pages. Of, of documentation um, that the FBI had gathered on the brigade, and this, of course, was you know far larger than any of the uh, the university archives that that I was you know consulting to try to get information about the brigade, um, and. So, you know, many of the, the FBI agents that were involved in compiling these archives and these records were, um, uh, you know, were engaging in, you know, historical and political analysis, some of it of high quality, some of it, um, let's say, you know, less high quality. Um, but the, you know, the FBI agents were, you know, in many ways, in some cases, you know, acting like or trying to act like historians. They were, uh, you know, making arguments. They were drawing conclusions um, according to the sources that they had. And so, you know, at this you know particular time when I was when I was um, doing this research, the the uh, the U.S. government and the FBI simply had by far the largest uh, archive on this organization uh, of of anyone, um, and so this idea of, of a state archive, I mean, it was. Um, sort of a way to think about the way in which the FBI's gathering of information and documentation in this way was really became an archival process. Yeah. My favorite chapter in this book is I, I rarely get to read about people hijacking planes. You have, you, so you have, a, you have an entire chapter on, on these on U.S. citizens who hijack planes and fly them to Cuba. Who, who are these people hijacking planes and flying them to Cuba? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, sort of an episode in American political history that's not very well remembered today. Um, but, you know, between 1968 and 1972, there were, um, you know, roughly 90 successful hijacking attempts, um, you know, from the United States to Cuba. And the people that were perpetrating these acts, you know, in, in many ways, they're very difficult to um, generalize. The, the people that I focus on were Americans that, framed their actions uh, in some way within left-wing, within tropes of protest, right? So they imagined their actions as uh, as, uh, as active acts of protest, either uh, against the U.S. embargo against Cuba or, um, you know, other political causes. And so, you know, one of the um, young men that I, that I profile was a, a young protester, anti-war protester from the state of Washington, um, who, uh, you know, hijacked his plane to Cuba as an act of protest against um, the Vietnam War. Um, with that said, um, most of the the hijackers, at least in Cuba, were perceived as mentally unstable. Were perceived as people that were um, politically opportunist, that they did not have, um, you know, sort of well-developed political analyses and that they were, again, in Cuba, um, perceived as, you know, common criminals that were um, using this opportunity, meaning the ability of Americans to hijack planes to Cuba um, as an opportunity to, you know, to get away with crimes that, you know, had no real um, political merit. Yeah, and and you write too about you know some of these concerns um, lead them to have a, a different experience than some of the other activists who come on um, come to Cuba. What was it like for them once they landed the plane in Cuba? 
Yeah, so at that time, anyone who hijacked a, a plane to Cuba was immediately under suspicion of, you know, being a potential CIA agent, for instance. Um, uh, and uh, they were, um, you know, quarantined within uh, U.S. Uh, immigration um, or U.S. Uh, detention facilities actually run through the Department of Immigration. And the Cuban government wanted to find out who they are and why they were coming to Cuba and whether they had, uh, you know, legitimate reasons for seeking political asylum. Um, and so there, there were some activists that, you know, made compelling cases that they were actually facing legitimate political person in the, uh, persecution in the United States or that they were facing crimes for which they would not uh, receive fair um, political trials, you know, in the United States. Um, what appears to have happened is that the Cuban government allowed almost all of these individuals to remain in Cuba and, you know, prove themselves as, uh, we could say, working members of Cuban society. And so they were detained for a period of days uh, or weeks, or in actually one case, uh, a year and a half within Cuban detention facilities. And then uh, eventually they were allowed into a halfway house, which was dubbed um, hijack house in which they were sort of acclimated to Cuban society. They were um, allowed to take jobs. They uh, were allowed to you know, find, or in some cases were given independent housing uh, in Havana. And they were allowed to sort of integrate within Cuban society and sort of make their way um, under the evaluation of Cuban officials. Um, and there were a number of these, especially those that were facing um, significant um, political charges or legal charges in the United States that made uh, you know long-term um, lives for themselves uh, in Cuba. Um, in the book, I write a lot about William Lee Brent, um, who was a member of the Black Panther Party, who was involved in a shootout with San Francisco police in 1969, and he you know had long perceived Cuba as. Um, a place that, you know, if anything happened, if he found himself under political persecution in the United States, that he, you know, might stand a chance of receiving formal political asylum. Uh, and, and in that case, that's um, what he received. I mean, he um, uh, ended up getting a university degree at the University of Havana and ended up teaching um, uh um, teaching high school actually at Cuba's at Havana's most prestigious high school for almost 25 years um, and you know there are others I also write about um, a, a man named Charlie Hill who was a member of the Republic of New Africa um, who was uh, involved in a shootout with uh, a New Mexico state trooper in uh, outside Albuquerque in the early 1970s uh, and with uh, two other comrades, he hijacked a plane to Havana and uh, was detained. But the three of them, uh, you know, made a compelling case that they were legitimate political refugees, um, that they, you know, made the case that they had been attacked by this police officer and that they, um, you know, that they uh, killed the police officer in self-defense and that they would not have received a fair trial in, in New Mexico in the early 1970s. And, you know, all of them were allowed to make lives for themselves, uh, you know, in Cuba. And, and you find this really surprising diplomatic story that comes out of all these hijackings, where you, you know, argue that, that these hijackings brought the U.S. and Cuban governments into um, a dialogue. And so, you know, how, how did that happen? What did these dialogues look like? 
Yeah, so I mean, as a result of these hijackings between 1968 and 1972, both the Cuban and U.S. governments found themselves really in an untenable position. Um, Cuba, you know, found itself, you know, having to deal with this this you know incursion of uh, you know American hijackers, most of whom were you know really seen as undesirable, you know, in Cuba. They were seen as people who had you know political crime, who had uh, committed crimes that had no real political merit. Uh, and on the U.S. side, the United States saw itself as having a law enforcement problem in which um, there was, um, you know, a series of hijackings occurring that was actually the highest rate of hijackings that had occurred anywhere, uh, you know, anywhere in the world, you know, during the, you know, the era of global, you know, air transportation. So both governments finding themselves in, you know, a difficult predicament were forced to do something really extraordinary um, for the United States and Cuba in the early 1970s. And that was um, talk to each other, um, or at least talk to each other openly. They, the two governments had been, you know, as we, we now know from some, you know, excellent scholarship that's been done on this, uh, the two governments have been actually in secret communications or secret negotiations for you know for quite a long time actually since the very beginning of um, the severing of U.S. Cuba relations. But the uh, hijacking episode between 1968 and 1972 forced both governments to do this openly and forced them to do this in a substantive way. And so in 1973, both governments um, signed a, you know, an agreement to, um, you know, to at least attempt to end, um, uh, you know, hijacking uh, from the United States to Cuba. Um, it bears mentioning that the United States actually found itself as a, at a disadvantage within these <laughs> negotiations. Um, that for many years it was um, the United States that had, you know, sort of been the target of hijackings um, from Cuba to the United States by Cubans that were disaffected by the Cuban Revolution, that perceived themselves as political refugees from communism, and that these hijackers from Cuba to the United States um, certainly had not been returned to Cuba by the United States, uh, nor had the aircraft been returned, and nor had the watercraft um, been returned if they, you know, hijacked uh, if the hijackings were, you know, boat hijackings and not air hijackings. And so in this situation in which the United States had not acted with reciprocity, in which the United States had not, you know, honored Cuba's request to return its property and its people that had uh, committed hijacking crimes, the United States now found itself in a position where it was demanding the same of Cuba. So the United States was demanding something of Cuba that it had not done itself. Um, and so in this sense, you know, the United States, um, you know, ne- negotiated with Cuba, but was in, um, you know, was in a weak position. And you move on from there to start talking about the Maceo Brigade. And in that chapter, you have this really interesting discussion that I want to highlight where you start writing about just the political minefield all scholars writing about Cuba really enter into. And so I wanted you to talk a bit about what that political minefield looks like and how you navigate that when you're writing about Cuba. Yeah. So Cuba studies and Cuban history, particularly within the United States, um, is, you know, an intensely polarized field. Um, for a variety of different reasons. I mean, U.S.-Cuba relations has, you know, reoccur, it has, um, you know, in a reoccurring way been at the, the center of U.S. foreign policy, you know, um, since the 1960s. Um, it's also a field that's characterized by intense emotions um, because of the, uh, the large communities of Cuban-Americans who, 
um, have uh, emigrated to the United States since the 1959 Cuban Revolution, and that in in many ways political discourse uh, on Cuba and knowledge of Cuba within the U.S. public has in some way been filtered through the political perspectives of Cuban American communities, um, and so it is um, you know a field within academia that's characterized by you know intense emotion, um, and so it you know it's often perceived as you know difficult to produce scholarship on Cuba that is, you know, divorced from, you know, one's, you know, uh, you know, political ideologies. I wanted to bring out a bit, you, you do, you travel to Cuba a lot for, the, for this book, and, and the book is based on just so many interviews. And you end the book, you know, writing about political asylum, which is largely based on these interviews, too. I was wondering if, if you talk a bit about just how many interviews you did and how you track down all of these people. Yeah, so um, there are... Three, um, there are three U.S. political exiles uh, who are you know currently in Cuba, um, who I pay a lot of attention to in the book, and they are of course Charlie Hill, who was a, a member of the Republic of New Africa. There is Nahanda Biudan, who was a member of the Black Liberation Army, and there is Asada Shakur, who was a was a member of the Black Panther Party and then a member of the Black Liberation Army as well. When I began doing this research uh, in Cuba uh, in 2012, um, Asada Shakur was effectively underground uh, within Cuba. She was protected um, you know, directly by the Cuban government as a result of being the target of a, uh, a $2 million extradition bounty um, leveled by both the FBI and the state of New Jersey. So when I was doing the research for this book, Asada Shakur was effectively uncontactable, and so doing the research on her necessitated that I uh, that I you know speak with people that that knew her, so you know her friends uh, and her comrades. Um, so the first, um, uh, you know, and so one of those people was was Charlie Hill, um, and you know Charlie Hill of all the political exiles in Cuba, I think. Um, you know, certainly in the last 25 years, I mean, he has been one of the most accessible to U.S. journalists. Um, and so, he, you know, he's been interviewed by, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, U.S. journalists and academics uh, over the years. Um, when I went to Cuba, um, you know, in a research capacity for the first time in 2012, however, I didn't know how to contact him. And so I had heard that he, you know, often hung out at a particular park uh, in Havana where he would um, try to find uh, U.S. or English-speaking tourists that, you know, might be in need of a well-informed tour guide who could, you know, show them things uh, in Havana that, that, you know, they might not find uh, on their own. And so knowing that he, you know, might be at this park, I uh, showed up there and, and, you know, began asking, uh, you know, people in the park, uh, Cubans in the park, you know, whether or not they, you know, knew uh, a uh, knew of Charlie Hill. Uh, and, you know, I, I introduced him as someone who was um, a member of the Black Panther Party, um, which is, of course, not true. He was a member of the Republic of New Africa. But the Black Panther Party was uh, and is very well known in Cuba. And the sort of the idea of the Black Panther Party in Cuba has kind of become a stand-in for U.S. Black liberation and Black radical movements. Um, and so I, you know, after a couple of days of asking around, I was able to, um, you know, to find a man who said, yes, you know, I actually do know Charlie Hill. And, you know, this man, you know, called him up and, you know, uh, an hour later, Charlie Hill was, uh, you know, was in the park. So Charlie was, was you know, um, 
uh, useful in you know helping me understand the realities of you know some of the U.S. political exiles that I was not able um, to contact. Um, I also spent a lot of time interviewing. Uh, and um, you know, sort of using the research assistance of a number of Cubans that knew that know, that knew and know very well the U.S. political exiles uh, in Cuba, um, and the U.S. political exile that I perhaps um, that I perhaps know best and spent the most time with uh, and the most interview time with uh, was Nahande Abiudun, who uh, came to Cuba in 1990, who. Um, is uh, accused of, among other things, participating in the um, the prison liberation of Assad Shakur. Yeah, and so I mean, you, you cover a, a big time period in this book from sixty eight to ninety two. I mean, when you look at that time period, what do you think are the the biggest outcomes um, or the biggest legacies of all of these travels um, to Cuba? It's a really good question. I mean, in the uh, you know the chapter that I write about the the Vincent Amos Brigade, I, I try to get at that at the end of the chapter, um, and I try to kind of think of the trajectory of the Vincent Amos Brigade as a um, internationalist, uh, transnational, left wing Cuba solidarity organization that began in 1969, but actually continues to this day. And um, so, you know, the Vincent Amos Brigade was important in that it introduced uh, generations of U.S. leftists um, to Cuba in a in a principled manner that it allowed uh, American left wing activists to travel to Cuba to meet Cuban revolutionaries and and also representatives of other left wing and anti imperialist movements who were you know in Cuba and in Havana at that time and um, you know these experiences were enormously radicalizing for a lot of Americans that that traveled to Cuba um, with the brigade and it you know I, I think one of the things that I noticed when um, interviewing um, former members of the Amos Brigade is that no one had emerged from their travels to Cuba um, unchanged, mm. that this had been an enormously significant um, political awakening for them, that they were, you know, in some senses, you know, never really the same, you know, afterward. And so what we find, you know, when, you know, studying, um, you know, social movements within the United States in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s is that we find, um, you know, alumni, so to speak, of the Vincent Amos Brigade uh, almost everywhere, but particularly uh, within the, the Latin American solidarity movements of the 1970s and 1980s, uh, in which Americans tried to, um, uh, you know, uh, intervene in and, and stop um, the, the threat of, you know, U.S. military um, uh, intervention into Central America. I'm thinking particularly of El Salvador, but also Nicaragua in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, there uh, were and are a lot of uh, former members of the Vincent Amos Brigade um, that became activists within the women's and feminist movements in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and within the kind of broadly conceived Black liberation um, and Black nationalist movements, um, including the remnants of the Black Panther Party. And so there's a, there was a, a, an article that um, was written in Z Magazine in the 1990s um, by Elizabeth Martinez, in which 
she um, talks about the Vincent Amos Brigade as being a pillar of the U.S. left, um, an organization whose uh, ability to kind of um, to radicalize um, U.S. leftists had been significant, um, particularly in the way that we see the former members of the brigade really, you know, throughout the left. I mean, she says something to the effect of that, you know, wherever we see movement in the United States, wherever we see left-wing activity, wherever we see social justice movements, um, you know, we find, you know, in some way, eventually we will find, um, uh, you know, alumni of the Vincent Brigade. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly important chapter in American history. I'm glad you wrote this book. The, the book is Cuban Revolution in America. Tatian Latner, thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. 